shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. your heads and pray this psalm with me. From Psalm 30, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Father, you have turned our mourning into dancing. The morning of Saturday, the morning of Jesus in the tomb, has broke forth with praise as we think on his resurrection. Lord, it's because of his life that we will give thanks to you forever and ever without end. Lord, we thank you for this time we get to come together and celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This might be awkward, but I'm going to do it anyway. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time for those of you at home. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, happy Easter, Faith Bible. We're thrilled to be worshiping with you uh, on this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, we do wish we were together. We really, really do. But at the same time, to know that that husbands are leading their wives in worship this morning, 
uh, to know that, that mothers and fathers are leading their, their children in worship this morning, perhaps for the first time. Uh, to know that, that you're reaching out to your neighbors today, to know that many, many are watching from all parts of the globe today, to know that, that all of the commercial trappings of Easter are gone, and we are left to focus on that truth that really matters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a very exciting morning. And with that, Addie's going to read now uh, an account from that first Easter morning as we look at Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Feel the love. 
Thank you all so much for leading us. We're going to sing a couple more songs at the end of the service, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, this is uh, Easter 2020. This is an Easter um, I know that uh, none of us will ever forget. Um, I've asked uh, my wife Cheryl to come up here with me this morning uh, to join me as I uh, lead us in prayer in ju- here in just a moment because uh, we want, want all of you to know how much we miss all of you and uh, your families and how much we're uh, praying for you. And I know that you're praying for us as well. Uh, we haven't forgotten you, and it's really clear you haven't forgotten us, and we appreciate that uh, so very, very much. Cheryl especially misses Faith Kids. She especially misses um, her class uh, that she teaches every week, and hopefully, hopefully we'll all be back here together uh, very, very soon. Well, uh, join us together as, as we look to the Lord in a time of prayer. Father, we remember those uh, words of Jesus that echo down the corridors of time. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he's dead, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Father, we thank you that you're the living God. We thank you that we have a living Savior. We thank you that Jesus is the Lord of life, is the Lord of all of life, Lord of all of our lives. And Father, I pray today that you'll reach into every home and into every heart with your presence, that you'll reassure us, Father, and you'll remind us that you're the God who can do the impossible. Father, that you'll remind us that you can roll away the stones in our lives. Maybe the the stone today of 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 a rocky relationship, the stone of unbelief, the stone of doubt, the stone of fear, the stone of anxiety. Father, we come to you and we pray for our world, for the rapid containment of this virus. The things in our world can begin to get back to, to normal soon. We pray for minimal loss of life. We thank you for all of our doctors and health professionals, Lord, who are helping us during this time. We pray that you'd keep them safe. We ask for a special blessing upon them. Father, now we ask that you'd empower all of us to walk in the newness of life that we have through the resurrected Christ. Help us to be faithful ambassadors and faithful witnesses for him in these times. So open our eyes now, we pray, as we 
open your word that we can behold wondrous things. We pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to us this morning and be our teacher. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot of things that have changed uh, for this Easter, for uh, Easter 2020. Uh, But there's one thing that hasn't changed here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, We're going to do what we always do. We're going to open up uh, the inspired and errant Word of God together. So if you'll take your Bible and turn with me uh, to Acts chapter uh, 10. Uh, Acts chapter 10, we'll begin reading in a moment at verse 36. And by the way, there's, uh, there's outlines that are available online for you if you want to access one of those. We're going to be looking at a lot of different verses and passages, so uh, that might be of help uh, to you here this morning. But here in Acts chapter 10, as we open to this passage of Scripture, we're, we're breaking in on, on a story in the book of Acts uh, where Peter is addressing Cornelius and his household. And he's recounting for them the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And we find a phrase in Acts chapter 10 and verse 36 that's going to become a springboard this morning for our Easter message. Jesus will be described in that verse as Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all of life. And that's a message that we all need to hear and embrace this Easter morning, I believe, in these unsettling times when things can appear to be out of control. Um, understand uh, this morning, this Easter morning, that whatever is going on in your life, whatever may seem out of control in your life, is under control. That Jesus has it all under control because Jesus is Lord of all. Let me begin reading here in Acts chapter 10 and verse 36. Again, this is Peter, the apostle Peter, preaching to Cornelius and his family. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead." And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. On one occasion, uh, Michelangelo, the great Renaissance uh, uh, painter and sculptor, uh, spoke to his fellow artists with some frustration about their depictions of Christ in art. And he said this to them, Why do you keep painting Jesus on the cross? Why not rather paint him by an empty tomb? Why do you always paint him as a victim and not a victor? Christ is alive, Christ rules, and reigns and triumphs. I like that, and I share Michelangelo's sentiments there. He wants to see a a triumphant Christ, not a a tragic Christ. He wants to see Christ as a victor and not as a victim. 
And when you think about it, Jesus is most often portrayed in the Easter story um, as victimized, as weak, as helpless, as kind of a helpless victim being dragged from one place uh, to another, a helpless pawn in the hands of the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Now, certainly we're not denying Jesus' suffering um, here this morning. It was real and brutal. Uh, Jesus was beaten, he was bloodied, he was slapped, he was spit upon, insulted, and mocked. And we never want to minimize that. But that's not the complete picture. Throughout the final days and hours of his earthly life, Jesus was in full control of everything that was happening to him. Jesus is the Lord of Easter. And he is the sovereign. And he has everything under control. Even when things seemed out of control, Jesus had everything under his sovereign control. And I think there's no more important truth for us to know in these uncertain times in which we live than that Jesus has everything under control, that Jesus is Lord of all. And at times, things can seem out of control in all of our lives. Things may seem a little bit out of control now in your schedule, maybe in your home. Things may seem out of control in your finances. I know for many of you, uh, not related to this virus that's going around, but just some of you are, are struggling and uncertain about your health. Now, maybe things may be, seem out of control with your career, your job right now, maybe that you've lost. Uh, maybe seeing, things seem out of control with, from an invisible virus that's out there plaguing our world. Peter reminds us here in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus is Lord of all, that he has it all under control. So what I want to do this morning is take us on a journey through the Easter story, a few of the high points of the story beginning a couple of days before Jesus' death. And what I want us to do is kind of take us through that story so we can see together that Jesus has it all under control. Um, As Michelangelo again reminds us, we need to present Jesus not as a victim, but as a victor. So what I want to do, and again, if you have the outline there, you can look and follow along at five ways that we see that Jesus is the Lord of Easter and that Jesus is the Lord of all. Now, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is Lord of time. He's Lord of time. On Wednesday of Passion Week, you remember the, the events of Passion Week? On, there's Wednesday, Jesus dies on Friday, then he's raised from the dead the third day on Sunday. But on that Wednesday of Passion Week, Jesus predicts his death in two days. He says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 2, After two days, Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Jesus died on Friday on Passover, just as he predicted. Now, what's interesting, if you read there in Matthew 26, it says there that the Jewish leaders said, we don't want to kill Jesus during the festival, lest there be a riot. So the Jewish leaders were saying, we don't want to kill Jesus during Passover. What does Jesus say? I'm going to die on Passover. When does he die? He dies exactly as he predicts, two days later on Friday on Passover. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus predicts his resurrection three days afterwards on Sunday. So he says, look, in two days I'm going to die, and then he predicts that three days after that on the third day that he's going to rise again. Jesus is Lord of time. And we learn from this that Jesus is Lord of all of his days, and he's also Lord of all of our days. 
And that's a wonderful thing for us to know, that the same Lord who controlled His own times can control our times. We can trust Jesus' timing in our lives. Um, As the Psalms tell us, our times are in His hands. So Jesus is the Lord of time. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of His history. He's the Lord of your history. He's the Lord of my history. We can trust the Lord at all times, and we can trust His timing at all times. I like the way Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, your times are in his hand. God is the one who winds the clock of life, and his time is never off. Now, those who know me well will know that one of my weaknesses in life, I have many, but one of them is I'm not the most patient person. I like everything done yesterday. I'm always on the move trying to get things done, and it's something I've struggled with a lot in my life. I like things done right, and I like them done quickly and on time. And I have a hard time waiting for things to happen. And so God frequently in my life puts me in the waiting room to make me wait. And I don't like it, but I know why he's doing it, because he wants me to learn to trust his time. And I hear not long ago there was uh, something I was trying to get done, and it kept happening and uh, not happening and failing, and I, I was frustrated by this. We tried three separate times to make it happen. And with some of the events that have happened recently, I won't go into the details of it, but all of a sudden one day I realized if that would have happened, that would have not been a good thing. It's better that it's going to happen now than happening a few months ago. And all of a sudden, now I'm praising God that what I wanted to happen, I was frustrated it wasn't happening, that it didn't happen. God has his hand on the timer of our lives. Someone put it like this, God's rarely early, but he's never late. Jesus is the sovereign of time. And if there's something in your life that you're waiting for, that you're frustrated, it's not happening. Or remember these words, God is the one who winds the clock of life, and his time um, is never off. Jesus is the Lord of time. The next thing we see as we kind of march through this this Easter story is Jesus is Lord of the traitor. He's Lord of the traitor. Back in uh, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, we have Jesus here at uh, the Last Supper uh, with his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 20, it says, Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with his 12 disciples. And they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, they all ate out of a common bowl back during that time. And so every one of them had dipped into the bowl. So they all began to look around at one another and say, Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, the Son of Man... Um, is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Jesus knows who the traitor is, but he doesn't stop him. Jesus has it all under total control. Of course, we know that uh, Judas goes out and does his, his evil deed. And then over in, in John's gospel, in John 18, we have this powerful account of the arrest of Jesus in John uh, chapter 18. We were uh, just there on the gar- in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, just a few weeks ago uh, in, in Israel, and so this scene is vivid in my mind. 
says in John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, again, this is at the Last Supper, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, the deep Kidron Valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Uh, the word Kidron means dusky or gloomy because the waters of the, 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 the river there at the bottom of the valley were often stained with blood from the temple sacrifices. And he went there to a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, this, is, of course, is the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the oil press. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So the Garden of Gethsemane was a, a place Jesus often went to get away with his disciples, and Judas knows it well. And verse 3 says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches uh, and weapons. So Judas comes with a detachment of soldiers. Now, it says here that he had available to him a Roman cohort. A cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion. A legion was 6,000 troops, so a cohort would be 600 soldiers. So they come with a large entourage, an impressive show of force. Now, many believe that uh, Judah, Judas may not have, have brought the whole, uh, the whole uh, cohort with him, maybe just some part of it. But if you read most commentators, they say probably there were at least about 200 soldiers. So again, this impressive show of force. There's temple authorities that are there as well. They come with lanterns and with swords and with clubs. Now, it's Passover, so remember it's, it's the full moon. So it would be very clear at night and easy to see. But, but one writer I read made this ironic statement. He says, they're coming out seeking the light of the world with lan lanterns and torches, looking for Jesus, seeking him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in verse 4 it said, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. Jesus wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught off guard. In fact, he never is. Nothing ever takes Jesus by surprise. And you'll notice Jesus here doesn't try to flee. He doesn't try to get away. In fact, he forces the issue, goes out to meet them, and says, whom do you seek? And they answered him, and they probably said this with kind of a sneering way, because people from up in Nazareth, this kind of backwater town, would have been looked down upon. They said to him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Ego me, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. If you know anything about John's gospel, there are seven great I am statements of Jesus. But the word I am, this phrase, this, this, this statement of, of God, of deity, is used nine times in John's gospel. And when Jesus looks at them, when they say, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus says, I am. He takes to himself the very name of Yahweh himself. And it says they drew back, they lurched backward, and they fell to the ground. Now, this word in Greek is used of someone being overcome in battle. It's used of a building collapsing to the ground. So all of these soldiers, this entourage of over 200 people, fall down uh, like cut wood, if you will. They, it's like they walked into an invisible wall or a, a, a force field. And think about this. They all fell down, including Judas. 
Every one of them, they all hit the deck and went down like a bunch of dominoes. At least 200 men lying scattered all around the Garden of Gethsemane, torches, clubs, lanterns littering the ground. They couldn't touch Jesus without his permission. He was in absolute control of the situation. John Phillips puts it like this. He was in complete control of the situation. Had Caesar summoned all his legions from the remotest outposts of his empire and hurled them in iron ranks against the Nazarene, the result would have been the same. They would have gone backward and fallen to the ground. Some commentators believe, and I think it might be true, that Jesus may have allowed, just for a split second, his essential glory to shine through, like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just for a moment to allow that glory to shine through, and it knocks them all flat of their backs. I like the way one person says that this is very terse but beautiful. Jesus arrests them before they arrest him. They're the ones that are being uh, arrested here. Jesus wants them to know that the only way they're going to be able to take him is because he's allowing them uh, to do it. And then on down in verse 7, he asked them and he said, whom do you seek? I think they said it a little differently this time. (laughs) Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these other go away to fulfill the word which he's spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. Now, usually when someone's getting arrested, they're not the one giving the orders, right? They're being you know, laid over and handcuffs being put on them and, and being led away. Jesus says, look, you take me, you let these other, other men go away, and, and, and they leave. They, they do exactly what Jesus says. I mean, he's the one who's giving the orders here as he's being arrested. And then on top of all of this, you all know the story that Simon Peter pulls out his sword and uh, he, he strikes the, the high priest's servant, Malchus. Again, you probably heard this said, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a good swordsman. Probably aiming for the middle of his head, but he missed and he cut off his ear. And his ear falls there to the ground, and John's account doesn't mention it, but Dr. Luke, of course, this would be something a doctor would mention. In his account, Dr. Luke tells us, Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on the side of Malchus's head, and he's healed. Now, you talk about somebody who's in total control of what's happening. I, mean, I think it, many of these people that were there at the arrest of Jesus after his resurrection must have come to faith in him as they see this happening. Uh, this is, I like to call this the miracle ear, as Jesus here puts his ear back on. But Jesus is in total control of everything that's happening. He wasn't arrested. He voluntarily surrendered. In fact, if you go to Matthew's account of this, when Peter strikes Malchus, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, he says, if I wanted to, I could call to the Father, and he would send 12 legions of angels to defend me. That's 72,000 angels. Remember, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Jesus said, Peter, look, it's not for for lack of, uh, of help or lack of power that I'm being arrested here. I could call for 12 legions of angels. Jesus is in total control. Jesus is the Lord of time. Jesus now is Lord of the traitor. He's Lord of his betrayal, his arrest. But next we see Jesus is Lord of the trials. Jesus endured six trials on Thursday night into the early hours of that Friday morning. And again, he's in control at every step. At every case, the person who is judging Jesus, they're on trial, not Jesus. 
Now, Jesus underwent three religious trials. He was taken first to the house of Annas, who was uh, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. So they go to to Annas' house, and he appears before Caiaphas, the high priest. Then Jesus appears before the entire Jewish uh, Sanhedrin. But back in uh, in Matthew 26, there's one uh, powerful passage here as Jesus is before uh, the high priest Caiaphas. In chapter 26 and uh, verse 63 of Matthew's gospel, it says, The high priest kept, but Jesus kept silent. Of course, this drove him crazy because he wouldn't say anything. I like to call this the silence of the Lamb as Jesus stands before them. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And finally, Jesus says something in verse 64 of Matthew. Uh, chapter 26. Jesus says, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and says, he's blasphemed. What further need of witnesses do we have? Jesus says, you want to know if I'm the Son of God? One of these days, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power. He's quoting here from uh, from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, a messianic uh, prophecy. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds with power and glory. Boy, what he's basically saying is, Caiaphas, you think I'm the one on trial here. You're the one who's on trial. And someday I'm coming back in power and glory, and you're going to be judged. So Jesus has those three religious trials. Then he has three Roman trials. Remember that um, he appears before Pilate first, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And, of course, Pilate finds no fault in Jesus, so he finds a way to temporarily pass the buck. The, uh, the tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas, the one who had had John the Baptist beheaded, he was in town for Passover. So Pilate sends Jesus over to Antipas because really Jesus is under his jurisdiction because Jesus is from Galilee. And again, we won't turn to that passage in Luke's gospel, but Jesus will never say a word to Antipas. All he's trying to do is get Jesus to entertain him, do some miracle for him. Jesus stands there and never says a word to him. So finally, in frustration, Antipas sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And, of course, the Jews had no authority to carry out capital punishment, so they're bringing Jesus before these Roman tribunals. But just one one account I'll mention here quickly from John 19, verses 10 and 11, as Jesus stands before Pilate. Again, you just see his control. Pilate says to Jesus, John chapter 19, verse 10, You do not speak to me. Don't you know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Look, I'm the one who's in charge here. And Jesus said to him, You have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you're not in charge. I'm the one who's in control here. Power has been granted to you to do these things. So Jesus was Lord of the trials. He was Lord of his own trial. He was in total control. And that's great news for us today because if Jesus was in control of his own trials, that means he's in control of our trials as well, the trials of life that we face. I know I've told this story before, but it's a good one. It's about a man named Owen Wilson. 
He was uh, lived in New Zealand. He was a pilot, and he wanted to do something special for one of his friends on his birthday. So he offered to take his friend flying in, in his uh, small uh, two-seat aircraft. They departed on a Sunday afternoon and drove around just seeing beautiful sights there in New Zealand. And at one point, as they began to cross a tall mountain, the engine began to sputter and died. And as they began to lose altitude, the, the pilot, Owen Wilson, is looking for somewhere to land, but they're out in the middle of, of all these woods in this mountainous area. And when it appeared they were going to fly into the mountain, his passenger cried out, Lord, please help us get over that steep ledge. And they barely skimmed over the ridge, and then they began to pray that God would provide somewhere safe for them to land. Finally, when all hope seemed lost, they spotted a, a tiny strip of land almost hidden between two ridges. And they were able to glide the plane down in that narrow opening and touch down. And as they touched down, they both cried out in unison, Thank you, Lord. But looking up just in front of them, they saw a big 20-foot sign in the middle of nowhere that said, Jesus is Lord. As it turned out, a Christian retreat center opened that, owned that field, uh, which explained this billboard uh, being there. But look, our world today is experiencing major instability. Uh, the same can be true in our own lives. Uh, we often find ourselves flying into turbulence. Some of us may feel like the engine is stalling in our lives, and uh, things might be so bad uh, that some of us may think we're bracing for a crash. Things may seem hopeless, but whatever the situation you and I are in, we can discover the incredible truth that Jesus is Lord, that He has it all under control. Jesus is Lord of the trials. He's Lord of Easter. Um, he's Lord of all. Now, from the trials, we move to the tree, the tree. Jesus was Lord of the tree. He was Lord of the crucifixion. Jesus was Lord of his own death. Now, if there's any death in which a person would look like they're not in control, it would be crucifixion. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal. Someone is, they're seized, uh, they're, they're thrown down, they're brutally nailed to a tree. I mean, if there's any kind of death where it looks like you're a helpless victim, it would be crucifixion. But Jesus was in total control of everything that happened. Back in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, where Jesus is giving a, a powerful discourse here about him being the good shepherd. In John 10, 11, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And then down in verse 15, even as the Father knows me, I know you, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. And then down in verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. Jesus said, look, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down, and I do it on my own initiative. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Look, Jesus bowed in death, but he didn't bow to death. And Jesus was not subject to, to death because he never sinned. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus didn't have any wages to pay. But he subject, subjected himself to it, even though he wasn't subject to it. 
Because Jesus died on purpose. Because he died as a substitute uh, to pay for our sins. But Jesus was not a helpless victim when he died. He laid down his life for for his own initiative. Jesus was made sin for us. John 19, verse 30. You all know this verse. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The work of redemption he'd come to accomplish was finished. And it said, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The Greek word literally is the word to release. means to give up. And it's an active verb. Now, when people die, normally they're passive. They don't have control over it themselves. But Jesus gave up his spirit. This word is never used of the death of any other person. It can never be said of a person that they released or they gave up their own spirit. Jesus was sovereign over his death, but he was sovereign over the exact moment of his death because he died in the ninth hour. He died at three o'clock in the afternoon, the exact time when all of those Passover lambs throughout Jerusalem uh, were being slaughtered. Jesus died at the exact time as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew 27, 50 said he yielded up his spirit. Jesus discharged his spirit uh, from his body. Uh, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who taught for so many years at Dallas Seminary, one of my beloved professors there, he says it like this. Christ did not die because his life slowly ebbed from his veins. His life was not taken from him. Christ died because by an act of his will, he dismissed his soul from his body. Christ was sovereign over his death. Jesus was Lord um, of the tree. He's Lord of his death. Well, the final demonstration of Jesus' lordship over Easter and over all is Jesus was Lord of the tomb. Again, going to John uh, chapter 10. Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. I'm going to lay it down, but I'm going to take it up again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. Jesus said, look, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down. And I'm going to be the one who's going to take my life back up again. I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Jesus said it over and over again. I will rise again on the third day. You remember that morning when they came to the tomb? What did the angel say? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. He said it. He predicted it. And it came to pass. He was in control. Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is the sovereign of the cemetery. He's the resurrection and the life. So a book I have by Erwin Lutzer, and in it he compares a lot of great leaders and what they claimed to be able to do. And he contrasts that with Jesus. He says, during the Russian Revolution of 1918, Lenin said that if communism were implemented, there would be bread for every household. Yet he never had the nerve to say, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Hitler made astounding claims for the role of Germany on this planet, believing that he was beginning a thousand-year Reich. Despite these outlandish claims, he never said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and shall not be condemned, but is passed from death to life. 
Buddha taught enlightenment, yet he died seeking more light. He never said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Muhammad claimed that he and his tribes were descendants from Abraham through Ishmael, one of Abraham's sons, but he never said, before Abraham was born, I am. Freud believed that psychotherapy would heal people's emotional and spiritual pains. He could not say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled and be not afraid. New Age Guru says that we will all be reincarnated, yet not a one of them can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. No one can ever legitimately make the claims that Jesus made, especially the one where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the Lord of the tomb. He was the Lord of his tomb. And he'll be the Lord of our tomb as well if we die before he comes. Someday he'll come and raise our body immortal, incorruptible uh, to be with him. But Jesus is Lord of time. He's Lord of the traitor. I mean, he's Lord of trials. He's Lord of the tree. He's Lord of the tomb. He's Lord of Easter. Jesus is Lord of all. And that means he's Lord of all that's going on in your life, and he's Lord of all that's going on in my life. He's Lord of every hardship, of every hurt, and every heartache. It's all under his control. And nothing proves this better uh, than Easter. I know I've uh, told you all several times now that uh, back in June, uh, we were able to go, Cheryl and I, with another couple uh, here from church. We were able to go and visit uh, Normandy uh, last June. We were actually there June the 5th. Uh, we weren't allowed to go the 6th. There was all kinds of, uh, of celebrations and memorials taking place. But we were there the day before uh, the, the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. And I learned a lot of interesting things from that time. But one thing I learned that was fascinating is uh, General uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower um, who was really the architect of D-Day, had an alternative letter that he wrote in case they weren't victorious. Um, he had a letter that he'd written in case the Nazis won on D-Day. He wasn't actually sure that the Allies could win. He knew they were going to go against a, a well-equipped, a battle-hardened German army, and he really wasn't sure of victory. Uh, three million Allied troops were involved in D-Day on June the 6th, 1944. At least 160,000 of those troops landed on the shores of Normandy, France. Before they stormed the beaches, Eisenhower's words um, kind of summed up the significance of this mission. Here's what he wrote to the troops. You're about to embark upon a great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. But there's another letter that Eisenhower set aside in case of failure, in case we lost. And you can see a copy of that online, but it's the originals in the National Archives. Because Eisenhower had doubts about the income, about the outcome. And if the invasion of Normandy failed, here's the message that was going to be relayed to the public. It's written out in his own handwriting. Our landings have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I've withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and this place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it's mine alone. It's interesting at the bottom he dated it July the 5th. It actually should have been June the 5th. I think we'll cut him some slack. He had a lot on his mind. 
but he, he put the wrong date there. But he had, he had an, alter, an alternate ending based on what happened. But think about this. For his D-Day, Jesus didn't need an alternate ending in case of failure. Jesus never said to his disciples, I'm going to rise on the third day, but in case I don't come back from the dead, here's what you need to do. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there was no point to any of it anyway. It was over. I love that great quote, if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. There's no alternative ending in God's plan of redemption. There's no plan B. Jesus is the sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over every detail. There's no alternate ending. And the There wasn't an alternate ending to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and there's no alternative ending to all of history. Jesus, the one who died and the one who rose again and the one who sits now at the right hand of God in heaven, is coming again someday riding on a white horse as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's Lord of all. There's no other ending to history. That's how it's going to happen. Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says, when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You'll confess him. I'll confess him. Everyone is going to confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Of course, for many at that time, as they confess him, it's going to be too late. So if you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one who died and rose again for you, do it now while it will still save your soul. Wherever you are right now in your home, wherever you're watching, you can bow your head right now and take Jesus uh, to be your Savior. Jesus is Lord of all, and He desires to be Lord of your life. Why not trust Him today and take Him uh, to be your Savior from sin? I read a book this week. Uh, by Max Lucado. It's his newest book. Uh, This uh, statement by him really grabbed my attention. It's beautifully stated. It's powerful. It says, Jesus transformed the tomb into a womb out of which life was born. Your life. Jesus. Five letters, six hours, one cross, three nails. We live because He does. Hope because He works. And matter because He matters. To be saved by grace is to be saved by Him, not by an idea, a doctrine, a creed, or church membership, but by Jesus Himself who will sweep into heaven anyone who so much as gives Him the nod. All you have to do is give Him the nod. You just have to shake your head and say, yes, Jesus, I'll receive you as the one who died for me and who rose again in my place to wash away I'm all of my sins. Why not give him the nod here today if you've never done that and say yes to him and trust him and take him to be your savior from sin? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come to you today in that great name, the name that's above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we come to you in his name And Father, I pray if there's anyone who's never surrendered to that name and trusted Christ to be their Savior, that they'll give him the nod today. They'll give the yes to the pardon that Jesus offers for all who will simply come and take it. Father, I thank you today that we can read your word and find out that even 
that the most difficult time in his life when Jesus seemed like a helpless victim, that Jesus was the victor. He's not a tragic Christ. He's a triumphant Christ. And if he was Lord over all those events of his days, that we can know that he's Lord over all of our days as well. Father, whatever hardship or hurt or heartache is represented here today as I speak and all the folks that are listening, Father, help us to know and to remember this Easter that Jesus is Lord of all and he's got it all under control. It's all under his control. Oh, Lord, we thank you for him. May his name be praised forever. Amen.
I want to leave all of us with those beautiful words that, uh, that Peter gave to Cornelius and his family there in Acts chapter 10. He says, we came peaching, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Uh, he is Lord of all. Let's go forth now in his love and in his peace, and let's go forth in the power of his resurrection. God bless you. Have a wonderful Easter.